You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 2 in our series on Habakkuk. A few more comments about the background of this book that are, I think, really important to understanding what's the situation in Judah. Remember, Israel is gone by this time, the North Kingdom, and Judah remains. Uh, So some comments about Habakkuk himself and then some things related to those circumstances. There's virtually nothing known about Habakkuk, the prophet. Some of the prophets say uh, the son of Amos or so forth, depending on you know who the prophet is, of course. But he doesn't say anything about himself at all. There's no mention of the kings reigning in his time, or even early even his location. We can narrow it down pretty closely, but uh, that's only by uh, other information we have. In his own book, we don't really get any of that. Even his name is kind of obscure in origin. Some have said it means uh, it means the word embrace, but even that's not entirely sure. Uh, the date, of course, we know that uh, in uh, in Habakkuk one six, which we'll get to probably next time, uh, God says He's raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans. Is all, are also known as the Babylonians. Chaldeans being sort of an ethnic name, but that's the nation of Babylon uh, under the leadership of a great, great king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In 612 BC, the Chaldeans and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Assyria, which was the capital of Nineveh. In 605 BC, the Chaldeans decisively beat the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh Necho, at an area, at a city called Carchemish. This was a very, very important battle in, in history, not only biblical history, but just history in general, as this battle, this victory by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians um, made Babylon the reigning power over the world. That whole area of the Middle East and however far that extended, that victory made Babylon the reigning power there. And actually the same year as Carchemish, the Carchemish battle, uh, Babylon came down south along the Mediterranean and initially attacked Judah and Jerusalem. And they didn't crush them as they could have, uh, but they did bring authority over Judah. Judah began to pay tribute. And it was during this year, 605 or so, that uh, Daniel and his friends Shadrach Meshach and Abednego are taken by the Babylonians to their uh, their capital city. Uh, in fact, Daniel chapter one happens uh, right about right after I should say the time of the uh, the first sort of initial attack on Judah. Uh, by the way, and even in this, we need to recognize God's mercy is seen. There was no reason that. There was no good reason that Babylon couldn't have destroyed Judah and Jerusalem. But God worked out the circumstances so that uh, the Babylonian army had to go suddenly, immediately back to their homeland. And it gave uh, Judah time to uh, reflect on what had happened there and on the power of the Babylonian army and on the, the uh, prophecies that had been given by several prophets and it gave them, and out of the graciousness and patience of God, the chance to repent. They didn't repent. 
but God was merciful. They, Babylon, again, could have crushed Judah at this point, but God spared them. Now, I want to go back and look at the circumstances under King Josiah. This is, this is from 2 Chronicles, um, or rather 2 Kings, 2 Kings, and read about this great King Josiah. Remember, the, the nation had just endured 55 years of King Manasseh, who was absolutely wicked, the worst king that ever reigned in, in Israel, the worst Hebrew king ever, just a vile pagan. And, and uh, Josiah comes to, to the throne, and this is what 2 Kings uh, chapter 22, and I want to read a lengthy passage here, beginning at the beginning of the chapter. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedida, the, the, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David, nor did Josiah turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, in the 18th year of King Josiah, this would have been about 621 B.C., the king sent, sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Remember, the house was uh, in terrible, the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord was in terrible condition, having been uh, kind of ignored under the many years of Manasseh's reign. And, and beyond that, Manasseh had put uh, idols into the Lord's house to be worshipped, false idols and, and images. And so the, the house of the Lord was in very bad repair. And one of the big things that Josiah did, as we read here, is that he had set out a big program to, re big program to restore the house of the Lord. All right, verse 7. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. Now, verse 8. Here's an amazing thing. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it in the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. It's, it's amazing to me, friends, that he just, he just uh, comments that they gave me a book doesn't seem to realize the, the incredible importance of this moment or the incredible uh, truth of the book that he was holding. He just, eh, he gave me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. So this is the first time King Josiah, even though he was a good and godly king, apparently it's the first time he's heard uh, the writings particularly of the Pentateuch. When King Josiah heard the words of the book, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, 
Go, inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book. Notice he doesn't even still say the book of the law. He just says this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And Josiah was absolutely correct. Uh, great is the Lord's wrath because his law had been completely ignored for probably several generations. Verse 14. So the Hilkiah the priest and his friends went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Turkvah, Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now Huldah lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord of God, the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. How about that? God basically seems to be saying, it's gone so far, the unbelief, the filth, the arrogance, the idolatry, my own people have gone so far, my wrath is not going to be quenched against them until I've fulfilled all of the destruction of Jerusalem. But, God says in verse 18, to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, in peace and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back these words to the king. What a passage. What an incredible passage here. We see the heart of Josiah, who, by the way, when they found the book, was only about 26 years old. Um, he was not a great seasoned uh, saint who was many, many years old. He was still a young man, and yet he had sought God with his whole heart. And when he found the book of the law and realized how terribly the people had disobeyed God, he wept and tore his clothes, and he was uh, fearful, and he should have been fearful because of what was going on here. So that is the story of Josiah as he tries to bring revival to the kingdom. Just a few more verses I want to read in 2 Kings 23, beginning in verse 21. Again, Josiah as he reestablishes some of the um, correct uh, practices in, in Judah. Verse 21, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to, to the Lord your God, as it, as it is written this, in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel. Now that's a good 300 plus years, folks, before 
uh, before Josiah, all the way back to the time of the judges. So that had not been celebrated in, since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before Josiah there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I have said, my name shall be there. So there you go, the story of Josiah, the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstituting of uh, the practices God called them to do, and uh, God's uh, response, although he does bless Josiah and give Josiah peace, he basically says, hey, it's too late. It's too late for the nation of Judah. So uh, back to the timing of, that's important background information as we get into the first chapter text, but back to uh, the timing of Habakkuk, it was probably written between 609 when Josiah died and 605 when that great battle at Carchemish took place between Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and uh, the Egyptians. So let me say this about Habakkuk. This book is, is a pretty unique book. It's referred to sometimes as a theodicy, not the Odyssey, but a theodicy. And what does that mean? Uh, it, means, it means it's a study on the goodness and the justice of God versus the existence of evil in the world. Let me say that again. It's a study on the goodness and justice of God versus the existence of evil in the world. Now look, if you're a, if you're a thinking person at all, you have asked those questions. Lord, why is there so much evil in the world? Why do you allow the existence of evil and darkness and filth and sin? Why do you allow that? Well, this is one of the just fundamental problems that uh, Habakkuk is going to deal with here. Fundamental question of why God allows this stuff. Um, and in my experience of talking to people about spiritual matters, about, about God, about Christ, this is probably the number one question that people ask and, you know, typically ask in a skeptical way. And that's fine. That doesn't bother me. It, it opens a door for discussion. But it is a big, big question that people ask about a good God. If God's so good, if God's so loving, why does he allow so much evil in the world? So Habakkuk asks two times, uh, ask God essentially, why are you allowing evil? and especially the degree that he's seeing, as we'll see in the first four verses. And interestingly, two times God answers him. That's a bit unique. Uh, we don't normally often see God answering even the prophets in this way. Um, but he does here. 
And we'll, again, we'll get more on that in the exposition. Chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk are a dialogue between God, fascinating dialogue, uh, that Habakkuk asks questions, God answers, and probably answers for the most part in ways that Habakkuk didn't really want to hear, but God another, nonetheless answers him. And one more thing, the central theme of the book of Habakkuk, and, and also the key verse, is found in Habakkuk 2.4 in this simple statement, but profoundly important statement, in which the Lord says, the righteous will live by faith. Isn't that something? If you're a Christian, you probably understand the profundity of that statement. The righteous will live by faith. In fact, that is the single most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, it's a verse that's quoted in Romans, in Galatians. It's also quoted in Hebrews on great passages about, guess what? Salvation by faith alone. So even though this is the Old Testament, it's not some wildly different dispensation. All the way back to, to uh, Abraham, we see in Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Here's Habakkuk, who is a, a pretty obscure minor prophet, so-called, and yet he writes the verse, or God tells him, the verse that's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Really interesting. The just shall live by faith. Okay, the text itself, I want to read the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. Here we go. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Hmm. A very, very corrupt society. And I should mention that the uh, supposed... Um, Re reformation or revival under Josiah was not a reformation at all. Josiah was a great, great godly king, but it appears that as soon as he died, the people went back to their idolatry and their pagan practices. So it wasn't a true, deep revival of the hearts of the people. It was just something that was forced on them, and I'm not against that at all. Uh, it was legislated upon them by the king, but they didn't really return to God. So the oracle, which Habakkuk the prophet saw, an oracle is just a, a burden. Sometimes that word is used, the burden, or, or a vision even. In chapters 1 and 2 of this book can certainly be called a vision or an oracle. And most of the time in the scripture, when men of God have visions like this, it's bad news. Not always, but it's often bad news. And uh, this one is terrible news for the Jews. Yet please understand, God is giving what we would human, very humanly look at as terrible news. And yet, God is telling what his purpose is. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. And it is scary, again, in a human sense. By the way, let me add, if you're going to a church 
and your preacher is always preaching happiness and success and prosperity and personal fulfillment and, and these kind of things, uh, hmm, my guess is he's not preaching, listen to this phrase, the whole counsel of God. Men and women, you should be attending a church where you are hearing the whole counsel of God. And uh, that's actually part of the reason I decided to teach through Habakkuk. It's part of God's counsel, and it's something we need to hear. The parallels between the time of Habakkuk and the time we are in in the United States right now are striking. So Habakkuk asks God, and by the way, when he asks God, he uses the name uh, Lord that represents the term Yahweh, or sometimes you hear Jehovah, I prefer Yahweh myself, and that's the great name that God told Moses back in uh, Exodus 3.14, when Moses said, what's your name, Lord? And the Lord said, I am that I am. And sometimes that's reduced to this term Yahweh. How long, O Lord? How long, Yahweh, will I call out for help and you will not hear me? Brothers and sisters, have you ever asked God anything like that? I'll bet you have. In fact, I think every Christian who's been in the family of God for more than just a few days has probably at some point gone, Lord, I keep calling out, you're not answering me. I've asked that question to God many times. And, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, done in the right spirit. If you read the greatest men of the Old Testament, David, Jeremiah, Job, Habakkuk, and others, they ask God, God, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you answering? And interestingly, God does not rebuke them for that question. I find that quite fascinating. God doesn't say, shut up and quit asking that question. Um, why, why does God allow this? Why do, does he take it, as it were, from mere humans? Well, here's, here's some verses that might answer that question for us. Why God allows us to ask him these questions. Psalm 103.14 says, He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Now, God knows that we don't have much of a perspective. And so he allows us to ask these questions of him. He knows we're just dust. We can't comprehend all of his ways. Second Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Again, the Lord knows we don't have any long-term perspective. We just tend to see the moment in front of us. We live a very linear existence. God lives in the simultaneous now. But he understands that we don't, we don't see the long-term picture like he does. Uh, he's eternal. We're finite and temporal. Uh, A.W. Tozer, my patron saint of Christianity, said, For God, everything that will happen has already happened. That's an incredible statement. And I, and I think because of God's eternal perspective and our very limited, finite perspective, he says, you know, you don't understand what I'm doing here, and I know that your perspective is not mine. So I understand why you feel the need to ask these questions. And one more, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Basically, God says, my ways are as far above your ways as the heavens are above the earth. Also, earlier in Isaiah, he says, my ways are inscrutable. You can't figure them out. So in some ways, now God has revealed things to us, no doubt, but in many ways, we simply cannot grasp his methods 
And those things that he does are beyond us, just beyond us. And so these things, I think because of these things, he allows us to say, why, Lord? Now, just one caveat there. Why, Lord, can go too far. Uh, it, it, can, it can become a why, Lord, that's, which is very defiant, or uh, it contains unrighteous anger, shaking your fist uh, at God, blaming God for things, and it can go too far, and it can really become sin. It can really represent bitterness and these kind of things. So when we're asking that why, Lord, we do need to ask it, I think, in the right frame of mind. And I'll give you uh, what the right frame of mind is, I think. The, the lamenting psalms that David wrote, and there's a number of them in which he, he's asking some hard questions. He can't figure out why things are going so, so bad. He's, he's hiding in the wilderness. Uh, Saul's out to kill him. And, and so he, he kind of complains to God a lot. Why is this happening? But the really cool thing about that is that I think in every case that I'm aware of in the lamenting psalms, that David ends the psalm with a great statement of faith. Just maybe one verse or two verses, but he says, Still, Lord, I know you're good. I know you're just. I know you're righteous. I know you're not going to forget me, and I still trust you. So, you know, if you're asking those kind of questions about God, why are things going they are, don't forget to say, Lord, I know you're good. I trust you. I believe you. In this moment, I'm struggling. I'm perplexed but I know you're good. Nonetheless, Habakkuk's cry in verse 2 especially indicates, seems to indicate at least, that he's been praying a long time. Did you see that? Um, I cry out to you, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I mean, it sounds like he's been praying about this for quite a long time. And God's, in Habakkuk's mind, God's not hearing. So, one of the big questions, I think, in the Christian life, a really, really big question, and I want to spend some time on this. Why does God delay to answer us? This is a great time to deal with this because here's a biblical prophet basically asking the same question. And this, isn't, this question isn't quite so much why does God say no, I'm not going to answer that prayer, as why does he delay to answer it? answer us. I've got six things I want to go through here quickly to answer this question, at least as much as I'm able, as to why God delays to answer us. Well, number one, uh, you might not be praying in his will. You not, might not be praying according to his will. And, you know, one of the exhortations to give here is to know his will better and better, you need to know the scripture. If we don't know the scripture, we're not going to probably pray very effectively in his will. You've, if you're married or if you have very close friends, you don't know what they want if you're not talking to them and spending time with them. Same with God. Not praying in his will, not praying according to his will, may result in very delayed answers. He could say no, of course, but it, may, it might cause delayed answers. And related to that, one of the things that sometimes people fall into is this question of, well, God's going to do whatever he wants anyway. You know, why pray? He's going to do whatever he wants. Well, just let me encourage you in this. It is true in terms, and I'm making a separation between God's 
sovereign will and his permissive will. I think that's completely biblical, and I'll show you why here. In his sovereign will, yes, God is going to do whatever he wants to do. Um, he's going to, uh, his son is going to return. Jesus is coming back someday. Whether we believe it, whether we pray about it, whether we do anything about it, Jesus is returning. And there are many things within sovereign, God's sovereign will, they're going to happen, and he's going to do whatever he wants. But apart from that, I think we have this very large area of our lives, which we call God's permissive will. And so in that regard, and I, this is amazing, that the eternal, infinite, perfect God invites us to partner with him. He, causes, he, he allows us to partner with him, and he works uh, through our prayers. He works our prayers into his eternal, omniscient, divine plan. And amazingly enough, he responds or acts accordingly when we pray. Now, I don't know why God does that. If I was God, I don't think I would. But God is so gracious and loving and kind to us, he invites us to pray. And within his permissive will, we can actually change circumstances. And one of the, the, the big ways we do that is we can get, we can have and enjoy blessings that if we weren't praying, we would not have. Now, this doesn't change God's sovereign will, but it certainly can affect our lives in this matter of his permissive will. And, you know, a great example of that, James 4, 3, uh, the scripture says, you have not because you ask not. So there's an area in his permissive will where some things are dependent on me asking if I'm going to receive a blessing or a full blessing, or I think also in terms of intercessory prayers, not just about me. Things don't happen within God's permissive will because we're not asking appropriately. And uh, also John 5, verses 14 and 15 say this, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And the, the uh, reflexively there, if we don't ask, we're not going to get some of these blessings that God may be willing to give us. So uh, don't take the attitude God's going to do whatever he wants anyway in his permissive will, he invites us to partner with him in prayer. And again, the number one point there, not praying according to his will, not praying in his will, may cause him to delay answers. Here's the second reason for delayed answers to prayer. I think sometimes, um, you know, we, we hear a great sermon or, or uh, you get excited about some spiritual uh, lesson you learn and and so you get really excited and you think, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the mission field. Lord, I promise you, I'm just lead me to the mission field. Or it may be some other thing that you suddenly get excited about and you want to do this. And I think sometimes God says, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I know you're excited about this. But do you really mean this request? Maybe we just get in a real happy mood, uh, maybe we get a real, if you'll understand what I mean by this, a religious feeling, whatever that might mean. And God just waits. And he says, I just want to see if you mean this. You know, and, the, and so what he wants to see is not just praying about it one time, but to keep on praying 
until you have a clear answer about whatever that matter is. Until you've got that answer firmly in hand from God. He may delay from answering. Uh, here's, a, here's a passage from, from Luke 11 that I think speaks to that. Uh, then he said to them, Jesus said to them, Suppose if one of you has a friend that goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, the man answers and says, Don't bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, says Jesus, even though he will not get up, give up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, this is the man making the request, because of his persistence, the man in the house will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, and I'm going to give you uh, the impact of the Greek here, keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives. He who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, it will be opened. So, there's a passage that talks about persistence in prayer. And had this man not persisted in prayer, he would not have gotten what he requested. So, the judge seemed to be saying, the man in the house seemed to be saying, look, do you really mean this? You know, I, I don't want to get out of bed, and the man really meant it. He kept knocking, asking, and seeking. And similarly, Luke 18, 1, Jesus says, Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So, if God's saying, you know, do you really mean this request? Then what you need to do is persevere in prayer. He may delay to see if you really mean it. Here's a third reason that God may delay in answering prayer. Uh, God sometimes may be pre uh, preparing a situation which will eventually address my prayer request. Uh, and it's not that God is lax or lazy in any way, but we might be praying about something, and God is resolving another situation or, or changing somebody's heart in another area before our prayer request can be answered. Here's our passage from Acts 16. Uh, verses 6 to 10. Actually, I want to start in the first verse. And we can see here that, that uh, Paul has a missionary plan as he sets out on the second missionary journey. But some things have to change before he can go in the direction that God ultimately wants him. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon, upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in their faith and increasing in number daily. Now, verse 6. They passed through the, re through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So Paul had a plan, but God said, no, not there yet. Verse 7, and after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and again, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. 
A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately, don't you love that? Paul's got the vision immediately. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel, gospel to them. Well, Paul had a plan. He was going in one direction, and the people in Macedonia, it appears, were praying, God, send us someone. We need help. We need lead, spiritual leadership here. And, and they're praying, and we don't know how long perhaps they had been praying, but they're waiting for God to resolve this situation. God was preparing a situation in which eventually he would answer their prayers. And it was involved with getting Paul pointed in the right direction, giving him this vision, and then, and then he could go. And there were a couple places Paul wanted to go into. God said, no, he, God knew these people of Macedonia are praying, and I'm going to get you in there eventually to minister them. Uh, here, here's a fourth reason. This is a really fascinating one. And uh, I'm not sure I understand the, all the intent of this. Maybe no one does. But uh, one thing that may delay God from answering our prayers is found in Daniel 10. Daniel 10, verses 10 to 13. Our prayers may be delayed due to spiritual warfare. Remember, we see in Ephesians 6, especially in Ephesians 6, Paul writes about spiritual warfare going on all around us in the heavenly places and so forth. Well, here, I think, is an incredible example of this. And this spiritual warfare that went on actually delayed the answer to Daniel's prayer. So Daniel 10, 10 to 13. Then behold, and, and by the way, Daniel has just had a vision that has terrified him. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O man, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I have been sent to you. Notice that I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he, this is an angel, said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I came in response to your words. So the angel set out immediately, friends. The, the, the prayer of Daniel was heard. The angel was sent apparently immediately. But now look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. What a fascinating little story there. It, it, there's no way that, the, as in verse 13, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia can't possibly be a mere human. No human can keep an angel from uh, advancing and doing what he's called to do. And he also adds Michael, and this is no doubt a a term, a reference to what we know as Michael the Archangel, one of the chief princes, comes to apparently assist this angel, and with Michael's help, he is able to uh, get to Daniel. But it took three weeks for Daniel's prayer to be answered. Why are prayers sometimes delayed? I don't know why God permits this, but spiritual war warfare is involved. Here's a fifth reason uh, my prayers may, uh, my prayers being answered may be dependent on someone else's free will, and that person may be refusing God. 
Uh, so if, if, God, if I'm praying about a situation and God has an answer in mind, but that person isn't cooperating, it may mean that my prayers are, delant, are not answer, being answered in, in what I would consider a timely way. And it's very possible that God may move on from that person and find somebody who will obey him. So God is not limited by this, but that person that he wanted to use and bless in answering my prayer, God says, okay, I, you're not going to obey me, I'll move on. I think there's plenty of biblical examples of that kind of thing. So that reason for delay, again, my prayers being answered, may be dependent on someone else's free will. And then the final point, and I'll close with this, um, my own sin may delay God from answering me. Now, it doesn't mean that it ends the prayer request entirely, but it may delay God answering me. Jeremiah 5.25 says this, Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. That statement, your sins have withheld good from you. So if I'm praying, but I've got some unrepentant, unconfessed sin in my life, okay, God says, you know, I'm just not going to answer that. I am actually going to withhold good from you because of your sin. And we know certainly that uh, James 5.16 is, is sort of the, the flip side of that Jeremiah 5.25 verse. James 5.16 says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So there's six reasons, I think very important practical reasons that we need to keep a hold of when we're seeing the answers to our prayer delayed. We will pick up next time with uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 and finish that initial passage there in Habakkuk.